Hey Rob, what are we doing here? Hey Aaron, um, so we put out podcasts in kind of a weird timing, and as I said before, I'm just going to reiterate, it's going to be like that from now on just because I'm not going to submit to social pressure of putting a podcast on Fridays. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like a good idea. It's just a I'm... PSA, I just want to get that out there front and center so that people hear me say it. <laughs> um... Currently, every podcast we've recorded is currently out. Uh, that's not true. Well, I've edited have... them all. <laughs> that is true. I uh, I haven't released the one that you sent me. Although by the time this is released, that will have been released. So you could have just gotten away with that lie. That's true. This is this is a true statement. I yeah, because I'm gonna do it right after we record this. So in retrospect, it I could have just gotten away with it. <laughs> um, the other Too thing bad. that's interesting about today is this is episode 99. Yes. And in the system of numbering that we use, <laughs> 100 turns out to be a number that people care about for arbitrary reasons. It's true. I don't understand why, because it's not anything special in binary. I mean, it's not going to be anything special in any other number system. I know. Really. I it mean, might it, be. In like, base 5, it might be a thing that's useful. In base 5, it would look kind of exciting, uh, but not as exciting as it does in base 10. <laughs> I bet it looks pretty cool in base 100. This is This is true. It does look pretty cool in base 100. <laughs> Uh, sorry, I was thinking about what that would mean. Does that mean it's a 10? It's 10. Yeah, 1-0. Yeah. Uh, so just, this is a public service announcement. Announcement. Most people only know base 10. The other bases, like base 2, it makes sense. It's like, you know, 1-0 is 2 to the first power plus 2 to the 0th power. Or like 1-1 one, one in base 2 is 2 to the 1th power plus 2 to the 0th power, which is 3. And then one zero zero is two to the second power plus zero zero, which is four. Anyway, those make sense, but there are bases above ten. Like it doesn't make sense at first, but like the most famous one, right, is hexadecimal, and that's where that's where uh, like A is ten, B is eleven, C is twelve, and all the way to F is fifteen. So you actually count 0 through 9, A, B, C, D, E, F, and then it flips over to 1, 0, which is 16. There is also one called base 64. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, I get the point of what base numbers are, yeah. Yeah, but there's actually one that's in use called base 64. I'm assuming that's just for, like, larger, larger integer storage is what they're using that for. So it's actually for uh, content encoding. So what you can do is you can take an image, let's say, and let's say that I can talk to you, but I don't understand binary. All I understand is text. So people wanted to come up with an easy and somewhat space efficient way to send an image over text. And so they ended up creating what's called base 64. And it's all the, it's the digits plus, I believe... All capital letters, then all lowercase letters, and then a few other things. Because the two sets of letters added together is 54. Or no, it's just those. And then you have like the equal sign is like a terminator. Anyway, so 
um, one thing you may not have noticed is there are some web pages that actually serve images that way. They'll serve them as this text that they put in this field. And even though Google shows you an image, it's actually text uh, that's in Base64. So anyway, kind of cool. So Base100, you'd add a few more symbols or something like that, and you could end up getting to a Base100. But it wouldn't be quite as useful as a, as a Base64 since it's not uh, a power of two. Well, uh, it's it's incumbent upon me now to mention that, not that that wasn't interesting, but that today we will be talking about the Chernobyl television <laughs> show slash podcast. So if you don't want that spoiled, but spoiler alert, what happens is the power plant blows up. Um, and if you don't know that, then it's just your fault for not knowing history. Um, <laughs> but before we get into that, uh, there's a couple little things, because I'm sure that Aaron's going to have a lot to say today. I have almost nothing to say, let's be honest. Um, there's a couple <laughs> things that I ran onto in the past couple of days that I thought were interesting and that I'd like to talk to Aaron briefly about before we get into Chernobyl. So if you don't want to spoil, we've got about five more minutes of, of conversation before we'll get into that. Um, that I'm just going to ask Aaron some questions real quick. Okay, let's do it. Okay, in the traditional... What meaning, maybe not the fair meaning, but who discovered America? The tra- in the traditional understanding, it's Christopher Columbus in the traditional understanding. Right. 1492. Have, have you ever been well actually on that before? And someone comes back as well actually, the Vikings discovered. No, and there's also the argument that, uh, well, and it's interesting, do you know why it's called America? Yeah, Mar- Marifucci. Yeah, Amerigo Vespucci was the name of the map maker. Yeah, pretty a pretty (laughs) unknown guy. Yeah, but uh, interestingly, when he drew the Americas, what we now know as the Americas, on his map, a different cartographer, a more famous cartographer, started using his map. And because he didn't know a good name for it, or didn't know that Christopher Columbus had quote unquote discovered it. He was just like, I guess we'll just call it America. So it was like a copy edit type thing. It's like kind of an off-the-cuff kind of random reason why it's called that. I've never been well actually on that. And and the other thing is, I think as far as we're concerned, like the the Viking discoveries of the Americas was not impactful to the subsequent uh, settling of the Americas Vis-a-vis, the Vikings did not subsequently intensely settle the Americas. And that is exactly the point I was going to try to make to lead into my next thing I wanted to ask you. Okay. So I was thinking, I wasn't thinking about this, I was just listening to someone else kind of get in the discussion and I really agreed with. That the relationship between the Vikings and Columbus, both having discovered America, but one of them was really the beginning of what we call the modern colonization history of what became of america correct i'm wondering if you think if the united states isn't the first country and it's looking like it's not going to be Uh to colonize the moon with permanent residents on the moon do you think that in the future in 500 years people will think of neil armstrong like we think of the vikings and the Chinese the way we think of Christopher Columbus as far as moon colonization is concerned. Because as of right now, like, if Christopher, if, I mean, if 
the first Apollo missions had never happened, what yeah. would be different today? Like, we really laid it on the moon and then took no real action based on the fact that we could get to the moon and back. So I think, Which is kind of what the Vikings did. They got to the United States, they found out they could do it, and then they didn't do anything with it. And then later on, Christopher Columbus started this whole revolution of just murdering natives and settling new lands. So, like, he was really the beginning of what ended up becoming the colonization of, of America, versus, yeah. which will be just like what the Chinese will do when they're the first country to colonize the moon. So here's two differences that I would say would give Neil Armstrong a leg up. One is that I am guessing that the exact name of both Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and every single person who was part of that of the Apollo 11 mission control will still be um, recorded in 500 years. If we haven't fucked ourselves, that data will not be gone. We it, Anyone can discover the names of every single individual who played even the tiniest part in the Apollo 11 mission, including uh, Neil Armstrong. The second thing I would say is in Neil Armstrong's favor is that uh, the distance between the Vikings and uh, Columbus was hundreds of years, almost a millennia. It was something like between 500. It was like in, a, in 1100 AD or something like that, right? Something? That's like, I don't know. It was like 300 years. Yeah, so it was 400, somewhere between, let's say somewhere between 300 and 50,000, doesn't matter. That gap shows that there was no progress at all. Whereas the gap of about 40 years, 50 years. They just had the 50 year anniversary. Like Yeah, so, yeah, sorry, I guess, yeah, I should have thought about the fact that I knew it was the 50th anniversary before I said 40 years. Uh, is like... We've been doing different space travel. There were multiple missions through the seventies. A few, like a few other space agencies, have attempt made attempts to the moon and things like that. It makes it feel a little bit more contiguous, where it wasn't like there was a constant stream of Vikings and uh, people of the Africas, etc., all sailing over to the Americas. Those are two things in Neil Armstrong's favor. However. Now- 14, wait, 1492 to now, right, uh, is 500 years. In 500 years, if the Chinese are the first to colonize the moon, I guarantee history books will say the Chinese colonized the moon. There will be no mention whatsoever of <laughs> Neil Armstrong or the United States, right? That's, that's, so that's what I'd say. The two things in Neil Armstrong's favor is that we know who he is and his name will not be forgotten. Whereas, like, the names of the, like, it's a little uncertain who exactly was the people who set for foot on America as part of the, you know, uh, Nordic expeditions. And the distance of time doesn't make it feel contiguous. We will know his name and it will feel contiguous, but I guarantee the amount of time that that can be spent on in the history books will say Chinese colonization, period. So, <laughs> the, another interesting thing that I thought, would, like, going along with that, and the point that you made about the massive amount of data storage we do now, as opposed to literally any other point in human history, 
noted. Yeah. Um, like, just like ballpark, how many famous people do you think you can name that were born in the 20th century? Probably a lot. Yeah, pretty good amount. Like, but every century, to, every I'd have to century, go through a bunch of categories and start sloughing off names based on category. But every century you go back, there's like an exponential decay in the number of famous people you know. Oh yeah. So like, like the 1800s, there's you probably got a few. 1700s, yeah. a lot less. 1600s, way less. Yeah, the 1400s, 1400s, it's like, prob- 1400s is probably Christopher Columbus, and that's probably it. Yeah, And I don't like, know that he was born in the 1400s. I just know that if he sailed in, ni- in 1492, he was either really fucking old or he was born in the 1400s. But it's like I can count them on like ten, like both my hands, right? It's, you know, I know Newton was like 1500s, I think, or was he 1600s? See, now I don't even know what century Newton was in. <laughs> I'm confused. Oh, no, that's bad. But like... I, I think the Renaissance was around that time, so Machiavelli was probably in the 1400s. Uh, maybe Michelangelo and Da Vinci were in there, but like that's that's already it's thinning out. And then I we get back to the years 700 to 800. There's some monarchs' names who's who I should know from that period that I I don't know. I know that Columbus like asked a bunch of monarchs for money. I don't know any of their names. I forgot. Like, like I don't care. Like it doesn't matter. So yeah, you're right. You go back 500 years. I guarantee the name, like, I can't even think of what name would be the 20th century. What five I would choose. So, right. <laughs> fast forward to the year 3019. Which people from our lifetimes will be the ones that some people Yeah, that's remember? what I'm saying. I, I yeah. don't know. That's what I said. It's like... Mostly because nothing's that revolutionary. Whereas maybe whoever uh, like is the president of the first colony on Mars, that name will be rem- or on the moon. That name will be probably one of them. Well, right. So or like, something like that. From our lifetimes, do you think someone like it depends on how capitalism goes? But do you think someone like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs has a chance? No, I think maybe maybe one of them. And in history, it's gonna be like our history books. Historians are just gonna pluck one from a fucking hat and use that as the example. It's kind of like, oh, uh, we need to put a woman scientist from the eighteen hundreds in a book, Marie Curie, I guess. Right? It's like there were hundreds of others that made hun- thousands of other discoveries. And it's just like, well, we gotta we gotta do service. And well, so books we can't be infinitely one. long, and people are going to read infinitely much. You have to limit the amount of information in a book. Exactly, and so I, I would say maybe one of them. I have. I would bet no dollars on choosing which one. So here's the good question: from the perspective of someone three thousand in the year three thousand, this will be within our lifetime. Do you think Hitler will be remembered? Yes. So do you think it's easier to be remembered on a on a long time scale? For acts of complete evil. So do you... you, Okay, so let's let's pretend like you didn't already answer this. Do you think Hitler will be remembered in the year 3000? The answer is yes. Do you think Churchill will be remembered in the year 3000? The answer is no. Do you think Roosevelt (laughs) will be remembered in the year 3000? The answer is no. (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. 
when you say remembered, I want to quantify for people what I think you mean. You don't mean, will you be able to look that up? Because the answer is definitely yes. Like, I don't, if, unless we blow ourselves up, I expect Roosevelt's Wikipedia page will still be there, right? Or whatever the successor is, or some type of entity like that will hold similar data with similar references with all of those books in digital format. What you're asking is, you take the some the average of people and ask them, do you know these names? And the answer is going to be no, right? Like, and, and the thing is, probably one of the most vicious people in, in terms of like, maybe he wasn't vicious. I don't know. Maybe it's just a story we'll tell. is like Genghis Khan. I don't know any other names from that century. I just had to look up what century he was took part in, which was fourth the 12th, century. The, no, the twelfth and thirteenth. It was a little oh, bit later. Oh, jeez, I, I was so far yeah, off. Yeah, I was thinking like eighth or ninth, but whatever. Uh, still, like we remember that name better than all the good people from that. I don't know who the Pope was. Whether the Pope was good or bad, I don't know either, right? Like, I don't know any of that. So, you're right. I I would guess that the terrible people will be more remembered because people try to make history the lesson. I mean, but, like, the... we still know some of the Roman emperors that are famous for being good. Like, Augustus and Julius Caesar were both remembered as being good leaders. Yeah, and I think it's because of the the... Those periods were at least from my understanding, romanticized by the Renaissance and therefore became reinvigorated. And they were also, it was like because of the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages and how not great life was in general and how a lot of science and historical things were all kind of uh, stagnant stagnant or dilapidated, that when the Renaissance came back up, it was like, when did we not suck as much? And it was like, that was the best time. And it, there was plenty of good times after that. But that was like when the new world order kind of came to be. Wouldn't it be fascinating to get a group of ancient Romans to talk politics about the, the those two leaders with, like, during their, their yeah. rules? But, like, if they just had the regular fucking squabbles that everyone has with leadership that everyone always has? Because, like... I'm sure. You know, for a long time after now, I imagine that Barack Obama is going to be a romanticized period of U.S. history because of how terrible his predecessor and successor were. Yeah. So, but, like, during Obama's presidency, I had a lot of problems with what he was doing. But none of those are going to be remembered. They're going to remember, well, he wasn't Trump or Bush. Exactly. And that's the same thing with Augustus. Like, I don't think he was... He was definitely better than Julius Caesar by most accounts. Like, he was actually a good politician, not just a brilliant general. Uh, He was, like... I think a brilliant politician and a good-ish general by most accounts. But he wasn't like he I'm sure he fucked up a lot, right? So nobody's nobody's perfect. So yeah, those are all really good questions, and I wouldn't be surprised if I, I would guess the layperson will not know the names of any of those tech giants, would be my guess. Like, the layperson in 3019 will not know any of their names. So all of these questions were raised by another podcast, and I just thought they were fascinating, and I wanted to get your take on them. Yeah. Do you know cool. which podcast that was? Uh, Dear Hank and John. Hello, Internet. Like, all uh, of the other stuff I steal. So yeah. <laughs> it's a hard podcast to get into, but once you're into it, it's so good. 
Yeah. Because it's kind of just two white guys talking. What? <laughs> what Dave Anka John is as well. Yeah, maybe that's I listen. True. I listen to a lot of two white guy talking podcasts. Maybe I need to reevaluate my you life. You need to. You need to branch out. Anyway. We have wasted more than enough time of Chernobyl's time. Shall we get into it? We shall. This is... I'm excited. The Chernobyl show on HBO um, is... As, the creator will even admit that it is a dramatic... Like, in some ways, it's dramatized the events of Chernobyl. But yeah. he's also tried to stay accurate where it makes sense to stay accurate, which, by their accounts, was most of the time. But there were still some things that they left out. And there were other things that they obviously couldn't cover in five episodes. And there were some things that they made a point to spotlight because they thought they were things that were important to know, even though they may not have been super important towards the actual disaster, but a lot of it was like the human effort it took to recover. Anyway, I say yeah. that. Um, if you don't know what Chernobyl is, or that it was a real thing and not just an HBO show, <laughs> um, it was a power plant in what is modern-day Ukraine, a nuclear yep. power plant, um, that through you know, economical design and operator air caused perhaps the greatest nuclear accidental disaster in modern history. Um, the effects of it are going to be felt for thousands more years, though the number of people that died because of it will never be known because it's impossible to tell in some cases whether or not a cancer was a direct result of exposure from Chernobyl or natural life. Um, the number of people who died at the event and in the immediate aftermath are known, but that is most certainly not going to be everyone who was affected in trace amounts of Chernobyl radiation causing future cancer. So that's the death toll will never be something that will be a solid known number, but uh, it was a lot. Um, a lot of people. Uh, and the show just kind of goes from the moment that the disaster happened through the early efforts of recovery. So it just covers, like, the disaster and the next year, essentially, of what happened. Um... Then there's also the podcast where Peter Sagal from NPR, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me fame, interviews the guy who created, wrote, directed, in some cases, the show. And he just kind of talks about where they took liberties with the material, where they cut corners, where they were very careful to be accurate. Like, he just kind of, it's kind of like a behind the scenes of the creation of the show. They're not talking about the events as much as they're talking about the events through the lens of what they changed and what they got right, or what they felt like they got right in the show. Um, if you don't know the history of Chernobyl, you should continue to listen to this podcast as I suspect we're going to get into that a bit more. Um, uh, 
I thought the show was very well done. Um, there were moments of it that made me very uncomfortable, but I think they were because things that make me very uncomfortable actually happened. And they were trying to highlight that the, the events of this disaster caused, mandated that certain human sacrifices, uh, had to be made, um, that were not comfortable. Um, with that, I think we'll get into our discussion of the actual show. Cool. I ha- I have some comments on uh, up front. I I thought it was really good. Um, it's it's one of those things that I wasn't sure it would be hard to watch until uh they started the show and I was like, okay, this is an interesting beginning. And like you said, spoilers. So it starts with um, the the main guy. Why am I blanking on his name? I mean, they're all super Russian names. So the names of the characters really never stood out to me in the actual show because they're just well, like they all. Know, like, I, the thing with like foreign names is if you're not used to them, they all sound kind of the same until you've gotten to like know more of the people. Yeah, Legasov was his name. And he basically is recording a tape, hides some of these tapes, and then commits suicide. To be clear, Legasov is not the main guy in charge of the disaster. Like, he was in charge of the response to the disaster. He was not responsible for the disaster. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, correct. Um, because I remember most of the other names, except for, shit, the guy who, oh yeah, Dyatlov, he's my favorite. Um... So the first thing I would say is uh, they showed that and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then they showed a woman, uh, and I think I talked to Rob about this briefly, who was pregnant, uh, who existed in real life. Um, uh, uh, What's his name? Ignatenko's wife, who was pregnant at the time. They show her having morning sickness. At around 1 a.m. So that's maybe possible, but like not as realistic as mo- I think on average morning sickness is, but it can be any time. But anyway, and I was like, I wonder why they're showing that. And then they uh, showed her seeing the explosion and they the next scene is in the reactor control room. And I was like, oh, I know why. It's because we're going to be watching vomiting for the entire rest of this episode. <laughs> um <laughs> And so there's some really cool, and they talk about this a little bit in uh, in the uh, podcast, but there's some interesting things that happen. The first thing that happens uh, is that there's like this big spotlight almost that comes out of the reactor. So like from, you see her, she sees the explosion and you see this like column of kind of dull blue light and there's a famous basically it's a very famous type of reaction it typically occurs when electrons are traveling faster than the speed of light in the medium so the speed of light in a vacuum is the fastest you can go right 3.0 times 10 to the 8th meters per second but uh light travels slower in air and it travels slower in water as well And so what that tells you is that there's some radioactive material. It's giving off electrons. And those electrons are going 
more than likely either at or faster than the speed of light in air. And because they're going so fast, they're ripping electrons off of other atoms or pushing electrons off of other atoms, causing tons of light to spew out. And that light is called Serenkov radiation. It's actually not harmful. Serenkov radiation itself is not harmful. It is in the visible light spectrum. Uh, but it, it's a very telling sign uh, that whatever you are looking at is probably radioactive and highly so. Um, the other thing they tell you in the podcast that's also very interesting is there is a very high correlation to the time between your radiation exposure and vomiting and the amount of radiation you were acutely exposed to. Um, the most famous example, although it's it happens here as well, but one of the most famous examples happened to a guy, uh, and now I'm forgetting his name, uh, uh, a guy who was working on the Manhattan Project, and he was doing what's called tickling the dragon's tail, or him and his team members were, and that is where Which they is a didn't know. Name. What? It's a fantastic name. Yes, it, it is a it is a fantastic fantastic name. Uh, and I'm going to look it up real quick to see what this guy's name was. Um, uh, so anyway, the way it would work is they didn't know how criticality worked, right? They didn't, And criticality is like just enough neutrons in a nuclear reactor to sustain the reaction. They didn't understand how that worked. And it was actually just hypothesized. Uh, by Albert Einstein and uh, a few others, a guy named, uh, shit, now I'm blanking on all these names, Salazar or something like that? Something, god damn, I should have looked all this stuff up. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it was hypothesized by them. They thought it would be possible based on the way uranium binding energy works. So anyway, <laughs> they they keep, they get these two semi, or hemispheres of, uranium close together and they would literally just get them closer and closer together and just measure the radiation or the neutrons coming off and when it spiked they were like oh we just created criticality and they literally held these two hemispheres apart from each other with like a pencil and a guy named lewis slotten uh was screwing around with it and accidentally bumped in the pencil the two hemispheres touched, like literally came all the way together and became what we call a prompt supercritical. And he was immediately exposed, like within uh, probably a millisecond, he was exposed to 27 sieverts of radiation dose. And to make that, uh, you know, just so you know, I think only one person at Chernobyl was even close to exposed to that much and that was uh, Ekimov and Tutanov they both they were the two operators who went to go open that valve even though they fucking knew that they were gonna die for it um so anyway they were probably close to exposed to the same amount um anyway the interesting fact there is that uh that guy Louis Slotin they he realized what happened and like pushed him away. They even said it was reported that he shielded, uh, like his he basically once he did that he 
put his body over it so that he could get them apart to use his body as shielding for the other people in the room. He literally vomited on the way out nine minutes later. Um, and so he ended up dying, I believe, seven days after that accident. And if you look at most of the deaths of the radiation exposure, like Ignatenko, one of the firefighters, their deaths were typically about 14 to 20 days after, if they weren't immediately killed uh, by the explosion or something like that. There were two or three people immediately killed by the explosion. But anyway, I remember viewing that and going like, oh yeah, this is going to be uncomfortable for everyone. And then in the second episode, they show you how uh, everyone is dying of radiation poisoning, which is also terrible. The interesting thing that they did show, that I'm glad they showed, was how Ignatenko, the firefighter, uh, was feeling better. And that's actually a very, uh, that's a very specific symptom of radiation poisoning. Almost everyone has what's called a latent period. You get really sick, you vomit, you have a headache, you don't feel well, you start to have diarrhea and things like that, nauseousness. And every single person who's ever died of radiation exposure gets better, like almost feels like they're fully recovered. And it's just this weird period of time between the initial effects, which is um, mostly gastrointestinal, to the secondary effects, which is that your bone marrow is almost completely dead and cannot continue to produce uh, red blood cells properly. And so you have this weird period of time between when those two effects kick in uh, that you feel better. And then it's all downhill from there. So anyway, I knew that would be rough to watch and they they did a good job of making that rough to watch. Uh, And I think they wanted to show how like that was part of the experience for these people. They were told that it was just a fire that they had to put out. And so they went in and did their duty and were exposed to a lot of radiation. I mean, literally, they said in the podcast and the accounts from Chernobyl is that there was fucking reactor core graphite on the ground. Like, I don't... And and there are reports that Dyatlov saw it. The guy who was the dick the whole time. There are reports that he saw it on the ground before he came into the control room, back in, to tell them it, the opposite of what had happened. And, like, graphite in the reactor core is not probably the most dangerous part, um, but it's it's going to be highly radioactive. But you think that he probably, his subconscious brain, or maybe conscious, but probably subconscious, knew what that meant, that he was dead. Like, that he was going to die of radiation poisoning because he was that close to a reactor explosion. And then his conscious mind was just in complete denial. Like, it had to make up a story that he wasn't going to die. And the story that he wasn't going to die was that there wasn't an explosion. Yeah, that the core hadn't exploded. And, I mean, they talk about that a little bit of the podcast. It's like, why did... Akimov and Tatunov go down to the pump room and open the reactor control flow valves, the manual ones. And it's like part of their reasoning was probably we're dead anyway. Now, Dyatlov survived. Um, He had radiation poisoning and he people with the amount of dose that he got uh, typically are 50-50. And he was on the left-hand side of that 50-50 that survived. Uh, I mean, he he 
I believe, died of some type of cancer within 10 years. But he survived the initial radiation poisoning, and they think he got around 10 10 sieverts or something like that, which is a large fucking dose. Um, The other thing that he did that was weird is he fucking knew that the dosimeters that they had only went up to 3.6 Rentgens per hour. And the fact that he just said, oh, that's the number, it's fine, is redonkulous, right? Like you said, there was some type of just insane amount of doublethink or something going on. Because to me, your dosimeter maxes out, you freak the fuck out, right? It's like we're in a facility where we should never be a part of anything where this dosimeter maxes out. And if we are, we we are in a bad situation, right? Like if 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 this dosimeter the dosage that this dosimeter is like maxed out at is an, is an amount that you shouldn't see. So if you do see it, it's a problem otherwise they would have made one that had a higher max. Yeah. And, and that's why that's one of the reasons why you hear them say in the show not not good. But it's okay. And it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, 3.6 Rentgens per hour, if you do the math, is approximately 0.04, or sorry, uh, the better way to put it is 40. It's approximately 40 millisieverts per hour. And and that's it. I would be like, not cool, but I'm I'm not freaking out. Like, I mean, you've got to be there for a while to have a bad dose. Most people say an acute dose starts to happen around uh, 200 millisieverts. And so if you're getting 40 in an hour, okay, let's all get out of here within an hour. And, and it's not great for you, but your outcomes are actually pretty good and your incidence of cancer aren't even that too, too bad. Um, but still, it's like the way he was just like, not bad, but, or not, not good, but not that bad either. It's just like, holy shit, man. And then they end up realizing, you know, one of the roofs was 15,000 Rentgen per hour, which is approximately 150 sieverts per hour. Like that, a lethal dose, a 10% lethal dose is about one sievert. You get to three to Three to eight, you're looking at 50-50. And above eight, you're looking at 90-10. And above, like, 15, you're looking at 100%. Like, you will die. Right? So It should be mentioned that they sent up human beings up to that roof to clear the roof off. Exactly. For those, like, 90 seconds or whatever, right? Which is ridiculous as well. Now, they had lead shielding, so they probably didn't... I'm guessing, though, each of them, because there were reports of them getting acute radiation sickness, each of them probably got got somewhere between a half a sievert and two sieverts. Somewhere in there. In 90 seconds. In 90 seconds, which is insanity, right? Like, this is, like, unheard of. There are some other interesting nuclear disasters where people got what we, like, literally don't know how high they got. Like, literally died within days. One was a famous accident where they were pouring a salted solution of uranium-235, uranium, I think it was like uranium hexafluoride or something like that, as a liquid into a barrel. And the two guys had no training on the way reactor critic or, or uranium criticality worked. And 
They were supposed to pour it into a thin barrel, which would have prevented it from reaching criticality because a thin cylinder is going to leak a lot of neutrons out the side. But they poured it into a fatter cylinder, which didn't leak as many neutrons out the side, became prompt supercritical, and literally both of them died. So, like, it can get worse, but that it this Chernobyl is bad, right? So, Chernobyl was real bad. In the show, they show them trying to get a robot to clear that roof. But the sheer amount of radiation fried the circuits of the robot almost instantly. Yeah. If that event happened today, do we have robots that would be able to clear that, in your opinion? Uh... Probably not. Uh, although I don't know exactly how much technology we have. The, I mean, the reason I love that scene is how sh- pissed Sherbina was, right? Like the Germans, they talked to the West Germans and the West Germans said, we can deal with that with this robot. And everyone's like, yay. And then it doesn't work. And they're like, what the fuck? And then they end up realizing that the USSR told the West Germans that it was only uh, 3,000 uh, Renkin per hour or something like that. It's something much w- less than what it actually yeah, was. Yeah, like, like a fifth or a tenth or something like that. And that's, what, that's the scene where he gets super pissed. Like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, we have to clean this up. Like, we are sacrificing human lives for this. And you can't even tell the truth. To be, Now we're wasting time. We're sitting here... Wasting time. We can't build the fucking sarcophagus because this roof is still on radioactive fire and you're still lying about it. It's kind of like, you know, it's it's with Fukushima. There was a little bit of hand waving from the Japanese government, but they did an okay job of tell, like they evacuated the area. Like, they did a pretty good job of letting the world know, like, this is a major disaster. You have to wonder, though, what would have happened to Fukushima if it wasn't for Chernobyl. Like, that, like, like yeah. people in that industry are aware of what happened at Chernobyl, and they're aware of the consequences of those lies. And so they were probably extra careful. Yeah, I also think that there's, there's a um, sprinkling of... No one would blame the Japanese for the accident, right? I think there's no question that the the re, at Chernobyl the reactor did not need to be under any duress, right? Whereas Fukushima the the Fukushima Daiichi reactor was literally hit with a fifty foot wave, right? There is at least some sense that. This is not our fault. Like we we this is related to a forty foot wave, and that's a large fucking wave, right? A fifty foot wave is just not in the calculations, right? And so there is some things that will probably change in the nuclear and energy industry, like not building reactors on coasts, but building them in, near lakes and other water sources. But still, I think part of the reason why they were so forthright is because nobody would they were likely not going to suffer any blame for the accident itself. At that point, it was try not to suffer blame for the response. And, and it, you know, whereas in Russia, they were going to suffer blame for the accident as well. This is a reactor that had no reason to be under any duress. It was either poor reactor design or poor management, and it turned out to be both. Right, because, right. like, wasn't part of the problem is that this 
tests that they were running that night should have been done before the reactor was ever used for power generation to begin with. Yeah, so a few things. Uh, It should have been... First of all, yes. The test should have been done before the reactor was ever used. Uh, Like all reactors in the United States, they have three different fail-safes that can turn... That, that can provide enough power to turn them off. Um, they've got other grids. They've got the diesel engines, which basically the prob- one of the problems with the Chernobyl reactor and other um, RBMK reactors of that type was that they couldn't spin up the diesel engines fast enough to get enough power to pump enough coolant into the reactor to keep it cool while it was shutting down. So the chain of events in a in a loss, what's called a loss of power accident, is no questions asked, shut the reactor down. So you start shutting the reactor down. But while you're shutting the reactor down, it is still, it still has heat. And if you don't get rid of that heat, it may, the water in the reactor may boil, causing it to possibly go more, be more reactive, and therefore possibly melt down if it can't get rid of its heat. So you have to keep the coolant flowing. All reactors in the United States, they can spin up that diesel. Those diesel engines are actually constantly running. Literally. So that, like, at least one bank of them is constantly running so that in any loss of power accident, they can keep the coolant running through the reactor core during, uh, while they're shutting the reactor down. And then there's also, like, two or three other fail-safes. Most reactors nowadays are also built with a fucking pool of water. Like a whole fucking pool that can be funneled through the reactor for 24 hours. Enough water to cool the reactor for 24 hours in, in like last ditch effort in one of these loss of power accidents. We don't have power. The diesel engine is dead. And that's actually one of the reasons why Fukushima Daiichi could have been worse. They couldn't turn on the fucking diesel engines because they were flooded, or I think it was diesel, something like that, some type of engine that they had. They were flooded, and so they ended up opening a manual switch to drop water from a huge fucking pool above reactor slowly into the core while they figured out how to uh, shut it off. Unfortunately, the wave damaged the reactor so much that they couldn't shut it off as quickly as they wanted to, so even like 24 hours worth of water didn't work. The other thing is, I think, I'd have to go look, I haven't looked up at the Fukushima Daiichi stuff as much recently, but I believe that container with that water was also damaged and so was leaking water out the side. So there was a lot of shit that went wrong because it got hit with a fucking huge wave. Uh, But yes, the test they were running, they should have never turned on any reactor with that design without being able to show that in a loss of power accident, they were able to run the coolant long enough to bring the reactor to full shutdown. The other thing is all those other flaws they talked about. And that was the other comment I was going to make. I loved that episode, the fifth episode, where they actually talked about what happened. I was getting really excited about getting to tell you all about what actually happened because I didn't think they would get to it. And they did such a good job of talking about how Xenon-135 works and the reactor poisoning and all that kind of stuff. But... Uh, and I wrote this in my notes. One of the things that I didn't like is the two things that were not true. Almost everything they did really happened. Like Ignatenko's wife literally did uh, like lose her baby after birth. 
right? Like that literally did happen. Um, and all of these other people um, having to clean up, quote unquote, house animals and things, house pets. That literally did happen. That story, like they talked about the podcast, the literal thing where the guy said, like, for the happiness of all mankind, literally happened. Like somebody literally reported that while they were walking through the streets killing dogs, they read a sign of like the USSR, like that motto of for the happiness of all mankind. Before you get into the thing you didn't like. They didn't do a great job, I felt like, in the show explaining why they had to kill house animals and all the other animals. Yeah, I agreed with that. Um, so the worry is that they will escape or flee the air, like get out of the area um, or possibly contaminate other animals uh, by leaving the area. Right. So the thought is they got such a huge radiation dosage that they're now radiation sources. Correct. And, and that's kind of like that famous pile of all of the uh, firefighters' gear, which is just left at the bottom of the hospital, that is still there today and is still radioactive. And th- so being near a radiation source that is so radioactive that you yourself or your clothing becomes radioactive enough to be uh, a concern is ridiculous like that is that is hard to do is the best way to put it it's really 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 hard to be to to be near a radioactive source that's so radioactive that you yourself become radioactive and that's kind of like those uh firefighters who were entombed in uh concrete right like that is really really hard to do so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit too because i do want to talk about the interesting thing about neutrons but the two things I didn't like is – well, actually, I didn't like one of them way less. They, the woman character, the nuclear physicist, um, she was actually an amalgamation of probably about 100 nuclear physicists from across the USSR. And that wasn't a big complaint for me. I thought that insofar as their non-historically accurate uh, things go, I think that was a reasonable thing to do. Because you have to right? make a show out of it. You can't – Introduce a hundred characters with a hundred names. Exactly. So I thought they did a good job of that. I, and, I, and I'm a fan of, of the way they did that. I just wanted to point that out as one of the things that was not strictly true. Because a lot of it was so strictly true that it was like unbelievable. And then it was like, no, this literally happened. The thing that really frustrated me is that the trial happened. But almost everything they did in the trial and the show didn't happen the people who were there weren't there and the things that were presented weren't presented and what he was trying to show off is the fact that what uh lagasov lagasov represented a group of those scientists who wanted to who was outspoken about revealing the problems with the rbmk reactor design and he dramatized it in this trial and the thing that i didn't like about that is just that i loved that scene and i was like man every episode i listened to the i watched the episode and i listened to the podcast i watched the episode and i listened to the podcast and every podcast he's like literally this exactly happened literally this exactly happened and then on the fifth episode i was like holy shit 
this is cool. They they've done such a good job of saying staying so accurate to the historical context that I'm excited to hear about how accurate this. Okay, this is not how it went down at all. And I was like, oh man, I love that, and it tugged at my heartstrings. And they did such a good job of presenting the factual data of how how the accident occurred that I was just kind of like heartbroken by the fact that it didn't happen in real life. So isn't the thing that happened in real life was that the Russians really kept it very much more hushed than that for a long time? And that yes. the reason they probably did the show the way they did it is they needed to give the show resolution in a way that will be satisfying to an actual audience of 21st century Americans. Yeah. And that the actual way it happened was very unsatisfying in that it took years and years and years of little bits of information to come out slowly for for us to actually get a global understanding of the reality Correct. of the situation. And by most accounts, it, it, it took Legasov's suicide. And that's the other thing. There's a little bit of dis, dissonance between, well, if he was this heroic fi- figure, even, it, you know, that stood up and did the right thing, like maybe he'd have a little bit more reason to live. But in reality, he didn't stand up and do that. He was just, he like 10% stood up and then all of his positions and power were slowly just stripped from him. Well, the, they kind of kind of covered that bit of dissonance a little bit in the show by having the Secret Service guy come out and say everything you just said will be disappeared from the record. Yeah. I mean, they, they tried to, like, in yeah. that way, explain why his suicide still made sense is because none of the things he did ended up mattering because the Secret Service guy was going to cover it all up. Which, in reality, if there were that many people in the room, surely some information from that thing would have probably leaked at some point. But yeah. they tried to, like, quench... They, they they saw this dissonance in the show between reality and fact and tried to do something to mitigate that dissonance. I use the word dissonance a lot right there. I should have probably come up with another word. That's okay. Um, so, the other thing... Uh, what was the last? Oh yeah, yeah, that's the last thing I wanted to bring up. So the the only other negative that I had is one time, not he doesn't do it every he doesn't do it any other time. One time, Lagasev says nuclear, and despite the fact that it's obviously all in English, and he never used the word nuclear, probably, <laughs> uh, Lagasev would have never used. The whatever wrong. the equivalent of nuclear is in in Russian, right? And I was just were like, you sitting there listening the whole show for that? No, I wasn't. I just it, I I've heard, you've you've done it a few times today, and I notice it every time. It's just impossible for me to not notice for whatever reason. And I when he did that, I was like, no, he didn't. He didn't do. It. And then I backed it up and listened to it again. And I was like, oh no, he said nuclear. Ah! <laughs> um. The other interesting the, the the thing that I liked the best about the show though is that two facts the show is basically centered around the question what is the cost of lives lies that's the first quote of the show it's kind of like a wrapped up ending quote one of the things that I love and I think Lagasov actually said this is in the actual quote he basically says the truth doesn't care Right, you can mask the truth for a day or fifty fifty million years, but his his like what he was basically saying is that that flaw, 
the two flaws in the RBMK reactor, the fact that it had a positive void coefficient and the fact that the fucking control rods had the most neutron moderating substance we know of tipping them, uh, causing a jump in reactivity when you try to stop the reactor. Those, the, the, the truth that those two things in the given the right circumstances could one day cause a reactor core to go prompt supercritical and explode all was always there right it 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 sat there the whole time and that, that's kind of the beautiful thing of physics it's like physics doesn't care the truth doesn't care reality doesn't care it was always true that this could happen it just that we chose not to care that it was true right we chose not to do our due diligence and to say this truth could theoretically present itself to us one day. And in fact, given the other uh, properties of the Soviet Union and the way people are promoted and the way, you know, running the test was more important than the test being successful and running it, running the test, you, you know, uh, deliberately unsafe was more important than running it successfully or safely all added up to the truth that the reactor could explode and cause this much damage. And I thought that was just such a cool point. And my favorite part of that is the fact that he started this project in 2016. Before yeah, before Trump. the current U.S. president was elected. Because the, 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 it begs the question, did you do this because our president lies more than any other president in U.S. history? And he the answer not. is no. He was fascinated by the subject matter. He was fascinated by... All of the calculations that went into the very, very unfortunate circumstance that caused Chernobyl. And he decided to make a show about it. The cost of lies in this case, and it's not always the case, is that everything that happened was the cost of lies. Because they were aware of this flaw before they built the reactor. So, like, if they had just, like, taken that study... That was done that showed the positive void co- coefficient from the get-go and designed that flaw out spent the extra time and money and effort of take to fix that then yep. none of this could have happened the way it did yep and the same thing with tipping the graphite the, the control rods with graphite to me the positive void coefficient is not strictly unheard of like that it's it's like it's not an unreasonable trade-off. Um, the tipping of the control rods with a neutron moderator is insanely egregious, right? The The positive void coefficient is one of those things where you don't want it, but it's probably not going to cause a supercriticality accident. Whereas tipping your control... It's like the control rods are for that... Per- they are for the express purpose of stopping the reaction and like to tip them in something to give you a little bit like eke out a little bit more economy from your reactor by giving you some reactivity as you pull the control rods out is just so insanely egregious because at the end, at the end of everything, those things need to be there so that when you drop them in shit stops. Right. It's kind of like, (laughs) If you were to put like the first 
when on a firefighter's hose if the first little bit of liquid that came out was kerosene. Exactly. It's, that's I. Okay, wait. Did you come up with that analogy? Just now, yeah. That is the best analogy you can possibly do. That's literally because it's like, well, just in case there's every once in a while we want a bigger fire. Because in a reactor, you do want that criticality, but you don't want the thing to put it out to be like that. So it would make sense for maybe some control rods to have graphite, but still, it's just such an egregious thing that they that they did in that. To me, that's the number one egregious design flaw. Now, we are starting to get a bit long here, so we've yep. got to start thinking about how we want to wrap this up, but I do want to ask you a question about policy. Uh-huh. This show is going to do more to educate the general population about nuclear power than almost anything else in the past 30 years has, like since Three Mile Island happened, or Fukushima. Yep. Yep. Um, do you think this will have affect the general population's view of nuclear power in a positive or negative way? Do you think more people will distrust it, or do you think more people will trust it? Because almost everyone vaguely, I don't know how much people, but a lot of people vaguely know that three major power plant disasters that have happened are Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and Chernobyl. And now that they've explained the worst one, in a way that shows that it wasn't necessarily the nuclear power that was irresponsible. It was the people around it that were. Yeah. But it does also, at the same time, show how much worse it could have been. How dangerous this kind of power really is. Because there were a lot of things that the show showed that didn't happen that could have been so much worse. Yeah, so uh, that's a really good question. So it's harder for me to answer because I'm uh, since I studied nuclear engineering, I'm pretty biased towards thinking it's awesome and a great source of power. Um, it also means that partially, like I, I can understand how after watching the show, especially in the fifth episode when they show the flashbacks, you could be like, well, if human beings can fuck it up that much, we shouldn't allow this. And it's it's a lot like every single thing that Dyatlov said. I it, it, And they talked about this a little bit in the podcast. You're like, especially as someone who studied nuclear engineering, you're like, but why? No. Like, what what are you doing? Like, you like you should understand how the physics of a nuclear reactor work. Why would you make the decision to move forward with the test at this point? Like, uh, and uh, so from my perspective, it it leaves me neutral. But I already knew most of of how Chernobyl worked. I think it's a better question for you. Like, how does it affect your perception of nuclear power? For me, I can't really guess. To me, it it's scarier. I would think it would affect it negatively because. It is scary. It's one of these things where it's like famously with Fukushima, something like 10,000 people died when the tsunami hit. The number of deaths uh, from radiation uh, is for Fukushima is today reported as best as – and the IAEA was allowed to do evaluations – reported as like zero 
they don't even think that there's any like cancer increase yet. Like they're pretty sure like the the like it's pretty low. There were two people who fell off of a crane uh, during a cleanup operation, and those two people died. And that is the only two reported deaths from the Fukushima Daiichi reactor disaster and cleanup. So, from my perspective, it's it's scary because it's like. Then you read reports like, oh, the fish are radioactive, you know, and shit like that. So I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's so unseen. It's like, well, obviously people died from a tsunami. It's a tsunami. Whereas it's like, oh, my God, they died from like shit they couldn't see. That is scary as fuck, right? I think the difference there is that the tsunami is not perceived as being man-made. So like yes, yeah. unavoidable. Well, that whereas a nuclear power plant is man-made, so everything. That well, even so, there have been incidents of coal uh, plants or uh, natural gas plants exploding and killing thirty people or a hundred people. And I think that was a you know a recent accident had happened like that, and it's like oh okay, you know, obviously it exploded, right? But it's it's a whole lot scarier when it's like oh all of those people who were standing out on that bridge that night. Like, we're dead within five to ten years? That's scary, right? Like, that's that feels weird. It's like, oh, you died of an explosion. That's obvious. Like, I know why you died. It makes sense to me why you died. You stood out on a bridge, like, three kilometers away and died of radiation exposure uh, due to cancer within a few years? That's That feels scarier, right? Because you it's so they- unseen. In the transportation industry, they always cite air travel as being one of the safest methods of travel, and the way they measure that is the number of human miles traveled divided by human deaths. Yeah. I wonder what it would look like as the if you were to measure the direct result of power plant failure, human deaths divided by the amount of power generated, how how the different uh, power sources would come out of that of that measurement. Yeah, that's that's actually a very interesting question. <laughs> I I wouldn't know. But like what's your take? Does it make you feel like it's more Well, I I didn't know as many of like the specific details of Chernobyl as as that as as I do now because of the show. Um but I I was well aware of the failure mechanisms in play that it was human error and bad design that we have both learned from and are unlikely to repeat. Uh, and in and, and the rest of the world, we already weren't doing some of the mistakes that were made at Chernobyl. Like the, the rest of the world was already not making those mistakes. Yeah. Uh, so I I was already aware of the that Chernobyl's mistakes have already been learned from or had already been learned by the rest yeah. of the world. Um, so I don't think this show really affects my perception at all. Um, I think the scary part of nuclear power is things like Fukushima. Fukushima does way more to scare me about the dangers of nuclear power than Chernobyl or Three Mile Island did. Because that type of natural disaster is going to become more and more common because of global warming. Um, so like... A massive hurricane hitting a nuclear power plant, causing it to fail on that level, scares yeah. me. Um, you know, there's going to be 
at some point, major volcanic accidents that have the potential to hit these types of power plants. There's going to be major earthquakes that have a chance to hit these kinds of power plants. Could be tornadoes in certain parts of the world. Tsunamis, hurricanes. Yep. Human war. Yep. Like, all, yep. like the potential of a terrorist group taking over a coal plant is so much less dangerous than a, than a terrorist group taking over a nuclear plant. So yep. those are the things that scare me, not things that happen to Chernobyl. So from the, the perspective of this particular show's effect on my opinion, personally, it's nothing. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it's neutral. I, I would guess mostly neutral uh, for most people. Um, but like I said, I... I I'm really glad that they made the show because it's it is a fascinating story and it's one of those things. It's like when someone asks, "Oh, you're a nuclear engineer. What happened?" It's like, "Do you have five hours?" <laughs> right? And it's like because there's the dynamics of it are so interesting in both the design and and that's why I like to say at the end of the day, like the number one cause because the flaw was always going to be there, but the number one cause of Chernobyl itself in in most people's opinion is the fact that the shift changed. That the power had gone down in another plant, the shift had changed, and they chose to run the same test with a set of people who were not ready for that test. One of which was a 25-year-old nuclear reactor operator who had been on the job for three months. Right, And so they had people who... And and even if he was the best nuclear reactor operator in the world, he was not prepared for that test. And that was probably the number one cause of the specific incident. Um, I did want to talk about two things that are hopefully we'll keep them short. But uh, fun fact, the equation that governs, and I'm going to send it to you, how <laughs> we can post it in the links. That governs how uh, a nuclear reactor operates or a nuclear weapon. It could really be any sustained nuclear fission reaction. It's called the neutron transport equation. Uh, and fun fact, I just sent you the iteration that I had edited in April of 2012. I think I had edited it later or earlier than that as well. Um, but uh, the most recent iteration... Uh, looks like this, and it hasn't changed much in the way of the equation from when, when I had edited it. Uh, but the cool thing about the equation is it, it, describe, it, it can easily describe exactly what Legasov talked in the, about in the last episode. Each of those terms were things he lightly, like, he touched on. And the most important term, though, um, is... I think on the first line, can you see it? There's like a one over V and the next one is like an Omega dot Del. And then the next term says Sigma total. Sigma T is that, you know, that big E. That is the most important term as to why Chernobyl happened. And this is, this is why um, it, I'm sending it to you because it's, it's really cool. We have a term in nuclear engineering called the neutron cross-section. And it is in the units of centimeters to the negative two. It roughly estimates that per unit, in a, in a volume, that per unit of distance that a neutron travels, uh, what is the likelihood that it will either be uh, absorbed 
or oh, sorry, it's in the units of centimeters squared because it's you're taking out the linear distance in the volume. Like what basically what is the probability that the neutron will either be absorbed, scattered, or cause fission? And the table that I just sent you, uh, we use the unit called barn, which is 10 to the negative 24 centimeters squared. Uh, because obviously these are really small volumes that we're working with. And they split it up into three into four sections. Moderator, structural materials, absorbers, and fuels. Can you see that table? Yeah. And what you want to look at is look at the fuel first. In general, I don't want you to look at the... There's, there's two sections up at the very top. There's thermal and there's fast. Long story short, neutrons need to be going slow. It doesn't make sense, but neutrons need to be going slow in, a, uh, in the type of reactor that, most, that is most built. There are things called fast fission reactors. They are more rare. Uh, they're more theoretical... Not theoretical, but like research-based nowadays. But anyway... So we're looking in the thermal area. And so the goal for a moderator, and if you look at them up at the top, you have H1, H2, and uh, carbon. And carbon is takes the form of graphite. It has a pretty high scattering cross-section, 4, 3, and 2, for fast neutrons. That means that for the neutrons that are really fast, it's, they can scatter really easily. The neutrons bounce off of them. And every time a neutron bounces off of a carbon atom, it slows down a little. We call that the average lethargy gain of a neutron. So it slows down a little bit. On average, a neutron has to scatter, I think it's like 23 times or something like that, to go from fast to thermal. And if you look at it, the fuel also has a fission cross-section up in the fast. So uranium-235, its fission cross-section is 1 up in the fast. So it doesn't, it doesn't uh, fission as often as it gets scattered by all those moderators up in the fast range. But it does scatter. It can scatter about the same as the moderators. So you've got all these fast neutrons scattering down to thermal. So Okay, so now we're in the thermal. We're, we're hanging out in the thermal area. And uh, if you check it out then, then hydrogen H1... So we would call that normal water, H2O. You can also use heavy water, which is using H2 called deuterium. Uh, but normal water can scatter with a cross-section of 20. That's awesome. So typically it takes a lot to get down to the thermal, and then it can get really thermal really fast and stay slow. And then you'll see, looking down in the fuel, uranium-235, that, that fission cross-section goes way up. It's 583. So when the neutrons are fast... It's only one. It's 500 neutrons are 583 times more likely to fission when the neutrons are slow. Okay? So what you do is you've got all this shit trying to slow them down. That's the graphite. The interesting thing about an RBMK reactor is that it was graphite moderated and the whole fucking core was made out of graphite. Most U.S. reactors, the whole core is water. So you're looking at scattering that's more like... Uh, you know, or they use heavy water or water, you know, this four or whatever. But the uh, graphite is replacing that water and it gets hotter. Okay, so control rods are almost completely made out of boron. 
And if you look at that, boron B10, not completely. They're made out of like other stuff, but most lots of control rods are made out of boron. And if you look at it, the reason why they're called control rods is that they have a high capture cross-section, right? They suck up neutrons. They capture them, okay? So here's where it gets exciting. What is the largest number you see on the entire table? Capture for xenon? The capture cross-section for xenon. It is, like, when they call it a reactor poison, that's a joke. It is the most neutron poisoning uh, isotope that we know of. The capture cross-section for xenon-135 is 2 million barns. Way more than the fission cross-section or anything of that for, for uranium. So what happened, right, they explained this, is they when they dropped the power, they had all of this xenon built up at a higher power. And when they dropped the power, there weren't enough neutrons to get absorbed by that xenon. And so the xenon was still at the amount that would be more normal for high reactor output, like 3,000 uh, megawatts, rather than they were down in like the 200 megawatt range. So that's why they had so much problems. When they get all the way down to like 30, they were they were poisoned. And like Akimov said, we're fucked. We're in what's... They, they literally call it a xenon pit. There's so much fucking xenon and not enough neutrons that we cannot get out of this pit of, of 2 million barns of absorption. And the only way to get out of it is to let the xenon decay away naturally by shutting down fully or by doing what they did and trying to get so many neutrons going and just get out of the pit. The problem is that once you swing out of the pit, you swing like a motherfucker. And that's why they went from 200 megawatts of power to 30,000 megawatts in the matter of something like two seconds. Because once that, once they, like, it's it's that, that neutron transport equation once that sigma t didn't have all of that xenon poisoning it flipped completely and the neutron flux went way up and the reactivity went way up and there was no xenon at that point there wasn't any xenon like they had burnt it all up all of a sudden by going supercritical and so that's called prompt supercritical it's where you you have enough criticality where the poisons and the delayed neutrons don't matter at all. Fission, just the fission of uranium-235 is capable of keeping you critical. So that's called prompt supercriticality. And that caused the water to boil, which caused the reactor core to build up too much pressure. And what uh, nuclear engineers like to call um, runaway disassembling. Explosion. <laughs> So anyway, I, I just wanted to show that because that to me is what they really should have shown is like the fact that xenon is not just a, a, a reactor poison. It is a huge deal, right? It's, it's the, one of the only isotopes nuclear engineers know about besides uranium-235 because it is the number one reaction limiting factor in a nuclear reactor. Well, I hope you found that explanation informative and helpful in addition to your study of Chernobyl. 
Um, uh, I, I, I personally would prefer that the United States invest more in nuclear power and to, to bridge the gap between truly sustainable power sources and the future so that we could start getting away from fossil fuels quicker. And I think that given the economics of the situation, nuclear power is the quickest bridge gap we have to get off of fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, but I, I am glad that even most people who are huge proponents of the, that power source would not say that it's the end goal. Yeah, I mean, I, that's actually a really good point, is most nuclear engineers view nuclear power as a, as a cog, a piece of the puzzle, right? And most nuclear engineers would say that as a piece of that puzzle, we should be also investing in different nuclear technologies, Right now, nuclear reactors are too expensive to build. You can't scale up. It's either all or nothing, right? They are uh, a source for uh, weapons-grade nuclear material, which is not something the world likes to see more of. So there's been some research in designing reactors that burn up weapons-grade nuclear material so that it can both provide power and not be a source of nuclear material, weapons-grade nuclear material. So the, And there's a lot of other policy things, like uh, in the United States, uh, we don't have anywhere for the waste to go. John Oliver did a really good episode on that, where he, he kind of said the same thing. I don't know what the answer is. I'm not for nuclear power or against it, but I am against the fact that our government does not have a place for nuclear waste to go. And at the end of the day, nuclear power does rep- produce nuclear waste, and we have to figure out what the fuck to do with it. Uh, so there's that. Uh and those policy questions are going to need to be answered soon, or yep. we're going to see much worse consequences. Though, you know, the truth doesn't care. Um, but with that said, if you have any comments or concerns, or just questions, more questions for Aaron, probably not for me, about this, feel free to drop us a line on the Facebook page or send us an email. Um I probably won't know the answer to it, but Aaron will probably be either know or be so excited about the question that he'll do hours of research to figure out an answer. Definitely. <laughs> um, so do that. Still got nothing on both at gmail.com for the email. Uh, otherwise, I think we'll just have to say we'll see you in episode 100.